I've got my family with me for this service. They weren't, weren't here for the first service, but my husband, Rich, is here, and our three boys, Jack, who's 11, Sam, who is seven, and Timothy, who is four. There they are. He's hiding, I think. Yep, there's Timothy. <laughs> not my husband. He's not hiding. <laughs> And uh, I brought something else. I brought my lunchbox with me. Did anybody else bring a lunchbox today? No, I'm the only one, huh? So I brought my lunchbox. It's uh, the Muppet Show. Anybody watch the Muppet Show? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love the Muppet Show. I grew up on the Muppet Show, and uh, we found this uh, maybe a couple of years ago in the attic. I remember we were going through some things. Where's my Muppet lunchbox? The thermos is missing. I had a yellow thermos with Kermit the Frog on it. We can't find that. But when we pulled it out, my son was with us, Jack, and he said, Mom, he said, that is so vintage. And <laughs> so he uses it now. He uses my lunchbox. He brings it to school because it's vintage. And uh, I don't know. But it really is mine. I'll prove it to you because my name is in it. Patricia Morrison. That's my maiden name. My mom wrote that. 5 Pequot Street. That's the, uh, the street I was raised on. In fact, last service, uh, a woman came up to me and she said, is that Pequot Street in Billerica? I said, yeah. She said, I lived on Pequot Street. <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting story. And uh, room K, so I have this in kindergarten, and that gets crossed out. Room 1, that gets crossed out. Room 2. So I had this for three years, and then uh, my little sister came, and she scratched out my name, and she wrote Karen on it. <laughs> room seven. <laughs> this is a lot of rooms. But a few years ago, 2011, uh, a new Muppet movie came out with Amy Adams. Did anybody see it? A Muppet musical. It's a good movie. It was a lot of fun. And uh, in the movie, Kermit the Frog is trying to get the whole gang back together, okay? Because they have been dispersed. The Muppet Theater is a complete wreck. It's in shambles, and there are no more shows. And everybody's off, and they're doing their own things. So Miss Piggy, I mean, she's, she's doing pretty well, right? She's in Paris, of course. And uh, she, is, uh, she is working in the fashion industry, which was her dream. So she's there, and she's content. And um, Ralph, of course, he's still playing piano. He's at a nightclub or at a bar. He's, he's uh, playing piano. And uh, Fozzie, he's still telling his bad jokes. But this time, he's in Vegas. Now he's in Vegas. And the only one who's doing well, according to you know, worldly standards, is Gonzo. And uh, he's made millions selling plumbing equipment, uh, <laughs> toilets. And, uh, he's really good at it. So he's made it. And Kermit has a tough time convincing him you know, to, to, to leave the wealth and all the glory. But they need one more person because they got to get the band back together. An animal is missing. It takes a little while to track him down because animal's in a program. <laughs> the program. Anger management. And uh, he can't be released. So they, they all, the gang goes to uh, Animal's program, and uh, they discover that Animal has a trigger word. Okay? So if you say this word, Animal completely loses it. He can't control himself. 
He just goes ballistic. Does anybody know what animal's trigger word is? What did he play? Drums. Yes, drums! <laughs> yeah. As soon as anybody says drums, animal loses it, and that's how they break animal out of his program. They say the word drums, and he just goes animalistic. Do you have a trigger word? A word that when it's said, I mean, maybe you don't turn into an animal, but you get animated. It's a word that when someone speaks it, you have this visceral response. Maybe for you, it's the phrase, Obamacare. <laughs> Maybe for you, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> Do you have a trigger word? Something that when you hear it, you feel the hair on your arms rise. Let's not talk politics today. Maybe it's a word It's closer to home. It's the name of somebody you know personally. Maybe it's someone you loved or someone who left. But when you say the word, these emotions bubble up, either glad, sad, or mad. And her name is on everybody's mind but on nobody's lips, because you can't speak that word. Because the emotions are so raw when you say his name. They all come flooding back. Don't, let's not talk about it. Do you have a trigger word like that? In our passage today, the name Paul is a trigger word. It's a word that when the Jews in Jerusalem hear it, they get so angry. They do have a visceral response. And in fact, our passage tells us they want to kill him. Now, Paul has just come off his third missionary journey. He's back in Jerusalem. And there are many Jews who have heard that Paul is preaching to Gentiles. And they feel that Paul has been watering down the Mosaic law. He's been watering it down, not following it to a T. And they don't like that, these Jews in Jerusalem. And then rumor has it that Paul has taken a Gentile friend into the sacred area of the temple. Okay, so Paul's on the Temple Mount now, which is filled with different courtyards. There's a courtyard for Gentiles. There's a courtyard for women, separate courtyard for men, a courtyard for priests. And you can only stay in your designated courtyard. And there are actually signs in the temple area that read, uh, no Gentiles beyond this point or suffer the death penalty. That wasn't a joke. <laughs> The Jews took that very seriously. So some Jews had heard, and it was a rumor, it was not true, that Paul had brought a Gentile beyond their court. And they got so mad. Just hearing his name, that he was back in the city. Ugh. So this mob scene started to be formed. And uh, they took Paul, and they started pushing him around and, and beating him. But Rome witness this. You see, adjacent to the temple area 
was a large fortress that Herod the Great had built in 31 BC. Antonia Fortress, named after his friend and patron, Mark Antony. And uh, this was a barracks and a palace for Roman soldiers. They had 600 soldiers gar garrisoned there at all times. And Herod said it was to protect the Temple Mount. Yes, but it was also to keep an eye on the Jews. So Rome, this is adjacent in the northwest corner of the temple area, had seen this mob scene start to take place. Herod even dug a tunnel, secret tunnel, um, from the fortress into the temple area. But they had seen this, so they rushed to break it up. You know, what's going on? They chain Paul, and they drag him back to the barracks, back to the, the, the fortress, and the crowds follow. And Paul says, as he's on the steps going up to the barracks, he says, could I have a minute and speak to the crowd? And the centurion says, sure. So he gives Paul the stage, and Paul starts preaching to everybody. <laughs> and he tells them about how God has sent him to the Gentiles, and how Jesus is resurrected. More trigger words. He's just throwing them out. Gentile, resurrection. And they get angrier and angrier, so angry that the guards have to take him in and put him in the barracks for the night just to keep him safe from his fellow Jews, just to protect him. Well, that night, while Paul is in prison, the um, Jews, an angry group, probably zealots, come together and they form a plan. It's an assassination plot. And they decide that they are going to kill Paul. Uh, that's just what they want to do. They want to kill him. And um, they form this plot, and Paul is safe in prison for now. And he has a vision from Jesus. That's in verse 11. In verse 11, Jesus comes to him and he says, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So we have Paul in prison. We have this assassination attempt uh, starting to happen. And Paul is going to die. I mean, it's really been said. He's going to die unless somebody intervenes. This plot is set. There are 40 men ready to attack. He's going to die. Has anybody ever stepped in to save you? Not from an assassination attempt, but has anybody ever stepped in? Maybe a pastor or a counselor who stepped in and said, you can't do that anymore because you're ruining your life, your marriage, your career. Has anybody ever intervened to save you? Maybe a doctor steps in and says, this is the news. This is what you have to do. Or this is what needs to be done. Has anybody ever stepped in, intervened to save you? In this instance, if somebody does not intervene, it is very clear that Paul will die. And then we're told, 
in verse 16, that the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, and he went into the barracks and told Paul. So good news for Paul, right? His nephew steps in. His nephew steps in and plays a role in saving Paul. And you think, well, of course, any nephew would do that. Step in to save his uncle. Uh, maybe not in this case. If Paul's name was a trigger word among the Jews in Jerusalem, think about what his name was like at home in Tarsus. Philippians 3.8, Paul tells us that he lost everything, all things for the sake of the gospel. Most commentators believe when Paul says that, he means he lost everything. His former connections, his former social connections, uh, his former life with his family, they believe he was disowned, disinherited, that his family turned their backs on him. So can you imagine Paul's sister at the dinner table and uh, she brings up her brother and dad says, not here, nope. Don't, I don't, don't speak your brother's name here. Paul's nephew might have been raised in that environment. Paul walked out on everything he knew, everything his dad had taught him about the faith. Uh, Paul was educated at home. He was educated right in Jerusalem, the best of the best. And Paul turned his back on it all for Jesus Christ. His father would never get he walked out. Don't say his name here. But somehow, we're not told, Paul's nephew hears about this murder plot. He gets wind of it. Maybe he's taking a midnight stroll and he overhears something in the bushes. And, that's, that's my uncle. And when he hears his name, for some reason he doesn't recoil, but instead he reaches out in love. We don't know how Paul's nephew heard of the plot, but what good luck for Paul. So his nephew plays a role in bringing Paul to safety. And even the centurion, the commander, they take Paul's nephew in kindly, believe what he has to say. Unbelievable. But it's not just Paul's nephew that plays a role, it's also Rome. They play a role in saving Paul. Rome, we're told, sends 400 men to bring Paul under the cover of darkness to safety. So you've got an individual who plays a role, Paul's nephew, and then you have an institution, a pagan institution, playing a role. And uh, this is what Rome does. Verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. So under the cover of darkness, they sneak Paul out of the city and bring him north to safety. I mean, this sounds like the stuff that is ripped out of a Hollywood screenplay, right? When President Lincoln uh, was going, heading toward his inauguration. He was going from Chicago to D.C. He went by train, of course, but on the way, uh, they discovered the Baltimore plot. And the Baltimore plot, of course, was an assassination plot. And uh, Lincoln's advisors said, 
you can't go into the city, into DC, the way you want to go. We've got to do it secretly. So they disguised Lincoln. He must have been a tough guy to disguise, right? <laughs> but he went in under the cover of darkness in disguise. That's how he entered DC. Well, here we have Paul under the cover of darkness. He's brought to safety. So there's an individual who plays a role. There's a pagan institution who plays playing a role. All of these come together, and Paul is safe in Caesarea. But is it really just an individual who feels some goodwill? Is it really the Roman army with their tactics and their organization and their planning and their skill that gets the job done? So much more than that. The passage does not say this directly, but God is at work. It's God. God who uses the will of one and the might of many to bring Paul to safety. That's God at work. Who uses an individual in a pagan institution to bring a man where he needs to be. How has God been working in your life? Really? Has he ever used an individual? The will of one courageous person to take you and to stand with you and to speak the truth and courage and strength and love. Has God ever used the will of one to bring you down a road that you're racing that will lead to destruction? Has God ever used the might of many to save you? Maybe it's a family meeting, an intervention, where the people who love you gather together and they say, mm -mm, we love you too much to go, to see you go down this path. Maybe it's the guys at the gym or the girls at the office or people in your small group who come around and pray for you and love you and speak the truth. How is God at work in your life? Here, God is at work in some surprising ways. He uses the will of one, an individual, and the might of many, pagan institutions. And Paul is moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea into safety. But we know that that is not Paul's final destination. Because Paul had a visit from Jesus while he was in the barracks. Verse 11, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul knows that he's going to end up in Rome. Ultimately, that's where he's headed. Caesarea, that's a stop along the way. But God is at work. Do you see this? Getting Paul where he needs to be. It's one more step. Ultimately, he's going to be in Rome. But God is at work using the will of one, the might of many, to get Paul where he needs to be. And notice how God does this. By saving Paul 
from a murder plot. And then, by taking that murder plot and using it to get Paul where he needs to be. You see what he's doing? God is saving Paul from something terrible, but then God takes that and says, I'm not done with that yet. <laughs> no, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to get you where you need to be. So we're not done with that yet, Paul. That's what God does. That is what God does. He takes all the stuff of our life, the things that we'd rather never think of again, and he says, I can use that. I'm not done with that yet. And he can take it, and he can get us where we need to be. I preach at this little church in Billerica. It is the church I was raised in. It's the church that I brought my lunchbox to. And they needed some help a couple of years ago, so Rich and I started going, and um, we've been there for a couple of years trying to get them back on their feet. And uh, I know everybody there. I mean, they remember when I was born, when my mother was pregnant. In fact, when my mother was pregnant with me, she went into the pastor's office, Dick Hall, she knocked on the door and said, I'm here, I'm having a baby, and uh, I need to, I guess, make an appointment, sign up, whatever it is. You can sprinkle the water, do whatever it is that you do up front with the baby. I, I'd like to do that, make sure things are okay. And he said, you better come in. And <laughs> my mom sat down, and Dick Hall explained the gospel. He told her who Jesus was. And the funny part is, he actually took out one of the Billy Graham tracks, and I think step three is, step two or three says, um, admit that you're a sinner. In her best Boston accent, my mom said, I'm not a sinner. And, <laughs> and uh, so he set her straight. But so I've been, at that, I've been at that church. I know everybody. A couple months ago, Charlie, our church treasurer for more than 40 years, had a stroke. And uh, it was a mild stroke, and he's recovering very, very well. But we were in the pastor's study a few weeks ago, and he asked me to pray for him for two things. We talked about how God was still at work in his life, even now, in the midst of this. And he said, you know the first time I met God? I said, no, Charlie, I don't know your story. He said, I was 26. I was uh, getting in the car. My mother was going to come with me. We were driving together to see my sister, who was in the hospital. My mom didn't come with me that day for some reason. And uh, I flipped the car. This was before seatbelt laws. Charlie still has a scar along his neck. He said, I was saved that day. He said, and I have never turned back. He found Jesus. <laughs> Jesus found him. Isn't that what God does, though? In the midst of the worst of our circumstances, he can take that and bring us where we need to be, make us who he wants us to be. God does that. God is at work bringing us where we need to be. I'm a big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I imagine many of you are as well. I recently reread uh, this book, The Horse and His Boy, and I was really taken with a passage about Shasta, who's the main character. Uh, Shasta is a little boy who has uh, grown up um, 
being raised by a fisherman, uh, does not know who his parents are. And the fisherman, he, he believed, was quite harsh. One night, he overhears the fisherman talking to another man, and Shasta believes he is going to be sold into slavery. So he runs away. And of course, before he runs away, he goes to the barn and gets a horse. It's a talking horse. <laughs> and uh, he gets on this talking horse, and he rides off. He's not turning back. And then this is C.S. Lewis, so he happens to meet another girl who's riding a talking horse, too. They don't get along real well. Her name is Erebus. They're the same age, and they kind of annoy each other. But this journey is not easy. I mean, they are hungry. There is not enough food. There is not enough water. They're chased by lions. Uh, Erebus is wounded by a lion. He spends a terrifying night among the tombs, where he, he hears jackals out in the distance. He thinks he's going to die. At this point in the story, Shasta is on his own. He's riding his horse. And the fog is so thick, he cannot see his own hand in front of him. But he feels something, and he hears something. <sighs> breath. And he's frightened. But the breath begins to speak to him. And the breath says, tell me your sorrows. So Shasta told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives. And of all their dangers in Tashvan and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice, and he was swift of foot. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. How do you know? I was the lion. And the Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the house of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach your destination on time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, to receive you. And it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. That God is at work. He is at work in your life and in my life. Sometimes He uses the will of one, sometimes He uses the might of many, but God is at work, and sometimes He is the cat who comforts you when you are sobbing in tears by the graveside. Sometimes He is off in the distance while you are hearing the jackals howl and you think you are all alone, but God is at work there. Sometimes he is the lion that scares the life out of you, 
but is chasing you so that you will get where you need to be to be who you were meant to be. God is at work getting us where we need to be. And he uses everything. He can use any circumstance, any person to get us where we need to be. That's what God does with Paul. He gets him exactly where he needs to be, using something difficult. God's at work in your life. He can use any circumstance, any situation, to get you where you need to be and make you who you're meant to be. You know, Paul wasn't headed to Rome on vacation. Verse 11 tells us he was going there. Jesus said, you must go and testify about me. God is at work in Paul's life, getting him where he needed to be so he could tell them about Jesus. That's why. So he could tell them about Jesus. Can you imagine Paul in Rome, in chains, as all these, these guards are surrounding him and they, they would take turns. Paul saying, you're not going to believe how I got here. <laughs> Listen to this story. I was going to die. I was in Jerusalem. There was an assassination plot against me. They were going to murder me. There were 40 of them. And then by night, I'm 400 Romans. So you're not going to believe it. He's telling them about Jesus. God is at work. And I suppose our story is similar, isn't it? God is at work in my life. I was going to die. But then God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, he saved me. It's our story, isn't it? He's at work. He will get you where you need to be. And when you get there, you've got to tell them about Jesus. In the late 1800s, a man named Charles Berry was a pastor of the great Plymouth Church in uh, Brooklyn. He told his congregation the story of how he had first come to know Christ. He was at a small church, village church, and he preached a very thin gospel, as he described it. It was really no gospel at all. He preached to his congregation about Jesus, how Jesus lived and the good things he did and how we should imitate him, but no saving grace. And he said one night at this little village church, it was late, he heard a knock at the door, and he opened the door, and it was a young girl, a Lancashire girl, shawl and cloths, and she said, are you the minister? Yes. Well, you've got to come now. You've got to get my mother in. You've got to get her in. And he waved her off and said, go call the police, thinking her mother was a drunk. They can help you. No, oh, I need you. My mother's dying. You've got to get her into heaven. He walked with her, ran with her, through country streets, through fields, until he reached this small home where, indeed, her mother lay dying. And he sat by her side, and he clasped her hand, and he began to tell her how she should live her life to be like Jesus. 
He said, mister, I lived my life. I'm dying. And you know the way I lived it? I was a sinner. Do you have anything else for me? Anything that can save my soul? And he said in those moments, he realized he had nothing to tell him. So in his mind, he went back to when he was a child on his mother's lap, and he remembered the stories that she would tell him, the stories of a Jesus who died for sin, who paid the price for the sin, the price that we deserve, the penalty that we deserve. And then it all came out. And you know what she said as he began to tell her about that Jesus who saves us from sin? Oh, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. <laughs> and he continued. And when he left, he wrote, I got her in. But I, myself, got in that night. God is at work in all kinds of circumstances. Even the ones that we think couldn't even touch, bringing us where we need to be so we can tell them, tell them about Jesus.